Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole and Happy Pride. I'm William, and with me today we have Samantha. Hi, Samantha. And we are joined by a special guest, Leslie McMurray. Hi, Leslie. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yes, we're so happy that you're here. We are going to be talking about services for the LGBTQ plus community when it comes to domestic violence, sexual violence services. And before we jump in, we will be talking about those services. That means we might be talking about shelter. We might be talking about advocacy. We might be talking about legal services. We might be talking about law enforcement at some point. So if at any point you feel the need to take a break from this episode, please do so and join us back whenever you are ready. Per the usual, we will start with an intro of our special guest. Leslie, tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Leslie McMurray. I work for Resource Center, which is the largest LGBTQ center of its kind in the state of Texas. And I think it's second or third in the country. I mean, not that size is all that important. I'm the Transgender Education and Advocacy Associate. I grew up in Southern California, born and raised there. And then I got into radio as an adult because I had a strong aversion to physical labor. So I spent about three decades on the air as a smart alecky morning show host around the country. And so I came out as transgender and that ended that like, just like that. And so I kind of transitioned into doing advocacy work. So I found out that when I transitioned, I seemed to have misplaced most of my civil rights. And mm-hmm. so that kind of inspired me to try and see if I could maybe find them again. Yeah, such a interesting journey. I don't feel like I meet many people who are in radio or an industry similar who have made the journey to advocacy. And it's certainly frustrating and disappointing that you had to, but the movement is certainly better for having you here. So in honor of Pride Month, our icebreaker for this episode is maybe a tough one for some folks to answer, as we were just discussing before recording. What is something, an achievement, an accomplishment, something about you, anything that you are proud of. And I can start, if that's easier for folks, to give a little more time to think, and then I'll pass it around. I think one of the things that I'm proud of is my relationship with my siblings. As My siblings are 10 plus years younger than me. And so growing up, it was kind of a semi-parent, semi-not-really-parent kind of role. And now that they're all in their early 20s, I've seen that relationship shift and grow with a lot of them. And I'm super proud of them. But I'm also proud of my relationship with them and how we've been able to really become friends. But I'm also still in this like, big brother kind of advice role, which is fun. And sometimes it's hard not to slip into those like parent dynamic things like trying to tell them what to do or something. But that's been really cool to watch the evolution of our relationship. So that's one of the things that I was thinking about. I don't know which one of you wants to go next, but I'm happy, Leslie, to pass it. Sure. I don't want to go and get dark or anything, but I think probably the thing I'm most proud of is surviving and living an authentic life because I fought that for a long, long, long time. People have described transitioning as brave. And while there's a couple of different definitions of brave. One is being terrified and doing it anyway. And if it's that definition, then okay. But to me, it's a kind of courage or bravery that it takes to jump out of a burning house. Because if you stay in the house, you're going to burn for sure. If you jump out, yeah, you might survive. 
So I jumped out and I survived. And I'm really, really happy and proud of that just on a daily basis because as a transgender person without kind of overamping it or anything, but it's kind of like every time I step outside the house, it's kind of an act of rebellion. There's a lot of things that are different because I was married when I was living as a guy to a woman and we could go anywhere we wanted, do anything. I mean, especially working in radio, for God's sakes. I mean, there was no doors that were closed. It's like, come see our show. Come eat our food. You want to go skiing? How about hella skiing? You want to go on a hot air balloon? You want to ride in a fighter jet? All that stuff was open to us. It's just a matter of going, yeah, okay, I guess I feel like doing that. Now I'm married to Katie, my wife, and I don't always feel comfortable holding her hand in public. I don't always feel safe. It's not that I don't feel comfortable. I would very much love to. I'm one of those big PDA kind of people, but I don't always feel safe in doing that. And that makes me sad because we should live in a world where if I want to hold my wife's hand in public, I can and not get ridiculed for that. So it's been a real education for me. Professionally, it's been interesting because for a lot of years when I was working in radio, it was just jump on the air, be funny, make lots of money, go home, lather, rinse, repeat, get up at three o'clock in the morning. And that was like, the worst part of my day is just, I used to say that they paid me to get up at three o'clock in the morning. Everything else I do for free because it was just a lot of fun. Now, instead of making a lot of money, I make a difference. And there's a lot of pride in that because my job is not about a paycheck and I'm not complaining about it. It's like, I do the same thing that I'm doing if they didn't pay me. So I'm not there bugging them for more money or less money. It's just, to me, it's irrelevant. They pay me great. Now I can afford to make rent and make a car payment, but That's not why I do the work. And I'm very, very proud of that. And we've made some changes that have been kind of big picture things that affect a lot of people. And I'm very proud of that. I've testified before Congress. I've testified at the state legislature on a number of occasions. But I also show up at school board meetings and city council meetings. And wherever the message needs to go, that's what we do. We do corporate trainings. I work with DPD and training new recruits and Fort Worth police and training new recruits and hopefully changing the way policing looks at people in my community. Because if you get pulled over and your driver's license doesn't look like you, it can go one of a couple of different ways. And we try and make sure that it goes the right way and that there's mutual respect. I had a chance meeting. It was really weird. A woman named Jessica from the Dallas Stars several years ago, she reached out and she said, hey, would you be willing to talk to some of the rink managers from the star centers, which are these little hockey rinks that they have around Dallas? And I said, yeah, sure. And so she says, okay, because they have a youth hockey league. And so sometimes they have trans athletes or LGBTQ athletes that come through and they want to try to train the rink managers. I said, okay. So out of the blue, like eight months later, she called and she says, hey, we got a bunch of people from the league together. Would you mind coming down and talking to them? And I said, sure. Do you need me to put together a presentation? She says, no, just talk to them. I said, okay. So I showed up at the AAC and they took me up to the executive offices and sitting around a table, a big conference room up there where Mark Cuban lives, was all of the HR managers from the National Hockey League, (laughs) Not, not the Junior Hockey League here, the NHL. And so I talked to them about inclusiveness and I talked to them about transitioning and trans employment policies and all that kind of stuff. And consequently, a lot of teams adopted those policies. I've done trainings for the Arizona Coyotes, the Anaheim Ducks, and of course, the Dallas Stars here. So it's been really gratifying to work with those teams and change the way they look at transgender people. So that's some of the stuff that I'm proud of. And if I had an icebreaker question, it would be, has anyone told you you kind of remind them of Dave Grohl? 
Because you kind of got that vibe for me. And I love Dave Grohl. <laughs> I have not gotten that one. I do. <laughs> most recently, I've been getting a lot of like Jesus comparisons. That's I feel like that's the low hanging fruit of the long <laughs> yeah. hair and the beard. No, no, that's Dave Grohl. I used to get when my hair was shorter. I used to get Zach Galifianakis sometimes. <laughs> I used to, but Dave, I haven't, I haven't gotten him. So yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> That's going to yeah. be my new running joke with you now, William. Yeah. <laughs> also, Leslie, I love what you just shared. I think that is just so exciting. And similarly to what William spoke to earlier, maybe the way that activism was born was not something to be celebrated, but the work that you've done is incredible and incredible to hear about. It makes me proud for you. <laughs> but I would say, I don't think I can pinpoint it to a moment, but I would say I'm a mom. And so I have to say that motherhood is my pride, what I'm proud of. I think the whole of it, all of it is something I'm proud of from going through birth and bringing home a newborn with like no instructional manual um, and surviving that part of it and making it to toddlerhood, which is where we stand now. I'm proud of the relationship that I have with her. I take great pride in raising the future humans that will inhabit our earth. And I take that as a great responsibility and do my best to raise a good one. And I take a lot of pride in that. And I think that I'm a good mom. Check back with me on any other given day and that fluctuates. <laughs> um, I'm sure lots of parents can relate to the, am I messing this all up or am I doing okay? Somebody please tell me. But and I guess we could also check back with her in about 15 years and see how she's feeling about it. But that's what I'm most proud of. Is you're in a big baby. club if you're down. <laughs> you're yeah. There. <laughs> right. So staying on the theme of what we're proud of and things that fulfill us in that vein, Leslie, can you share with us a little bit about some of the proud moments within the work that you do and some of the work that you've been the most proud of at your center? Yeah, sure. I do a lot of corporate trainings. I think that's probably the bread and butter. And I've done Fortune 500 companies and I've done Mushroom Farm and Garland. So to me, it doesn't really matter. I look at the people that are participating in the training as like pebbles in a pond because each one has those kind of arcs that go out. And I don't mean to make it sound formulaic, but there is a purpose and intention when working with people talking about LGBTQ issues because we're largely misunderstood. If I'm talking to a BRG, it's a different conversation. But if we're talking to people that don't really understand the community, it's getting them to understand. So there are elements to that, and that is you have to make them care. And that involves making yourself vulnerable. Because if they can identify with you in some way, even if when you first log on, it's like, oh, here's this transgender woman. I have nothing in common with her. It's like, well, you know what? There's a reverend, a guy named Will Horn, that was speaking at the funeral of a murdered trans woman. And he said something that really resonated with me. He said, prejudice rarely survives experience. And it's true. Because you can think what you want about somebody that you've never met. You look at them and you draw all these conclusions. And if you sit down and talk with them, those conclusions are probably going to be all wrong. And you may find out that that person has more in common with you than you ever thought, but you'll never know unless you open your eyes and open your ears and open your heart. And so 
by expressing vulnerability and sharing things about myself that aren't about being transgender, because that's like this much of who I am. There's so much else that I've done and that I am and that I enjoy cooking and reading. I've got three border collies. I love to play golf. I've got two daughters and five grandkids and on down the list. So gender identity is just a part of me. It's not the whole of who I am. And it's really selling me short if that's all you look at me as, as a transgender woman. So if I can make you care, the next step is changing your mind. And that's giving you good information. I believe in critical thinking. I am not going to try and hammer something down somebody's throat and change the way they think by brute force. It's more of, I'm going to give you some things to think about. And the facts that I give you, you can look up. Like there was recently a study done by the Centers for Disease Control that showed that LGBTQ kids suffered greatly with uh, pandemic isolation, didn't do well at all. Same thing with the Trevor Hotline. They did a study of, I believe it was 23,000 was the size of the cohort and found that affirming care for transgender and LGBTQ kids saves lives unequivocally. So I'll give information like that. And it's like their thought starters. Wow, that's not what I thought. Or I had assumed this, but that happened. Reuters did a study a few years ago, and it was prior to the Bostock ruling, which gave us employment protection. And they asked Americans whether or not transgender people had employment protections. 40% of America said yes. And the answer is no, we did not. Not at the federal level, not at the state level. And so that wakes people up because when we tell people that, or if they hear us lobbying for employment protections, they're going to say, oh, well, they just want extra rights. And so that sets us back because they think we're wanting to tilt the platform towards us and we're not. We just want it equal. We just want it level. And so truth and education are very powerful. And hopefully we do change minds. So if we're successful in making someone care and changing their mind, all that's left is to give a call to action. And again, we're not telling anyone what to do, but I urge everybody, everyone that's listening here to participate in the process and vote, get out, make sure your voice heard, because that's how you're going to make a difference. And then understand the power of the individual. Prior to the Bostock ruling, I live in Capel, which is in the northwest suburb of Dallas. And our mayor at the time, her name is Karen Hunt. And I noticed that the city of Capel did not have inclusive employment policies based on sex orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. So I called up Karen. I said, hey, can we have coffee one of these days? I got something I want to talk to you about. And she said, sure. Now, I'm no big shot in Capel. I'm just another resident there. But she's a good mayor and said, I want to meet with constituents. So she did. And as long as you're reasonable and you're sane and asking her for those things. And I said, did you know the city does not offer these protections? And she said, no, I didn't know that. And so we ended up talking with Mike Land, who's their city manager. He gave me to a deputy, a woman named Vicki Schiavetta. We wrote the employment manual and Capel now includes sex orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. It came about from a phone call just asking. And you have that power as an individual, your mayor, your city council, your school board, they all want to hear from you. Your uh, person who represents you in the state legislature is there and they want to hear from you. They want to know what you think. So make sure your voice is heard and then get out and vote. So if you can make someone care, change their mind, give them a call to action, you've had a successful experience. And that's what we try and do over and over. And we talk to different people different ways. We try and tailor everything to meet the right group. I love that example so much because one, just your roadmap there, like it seems so easy. I think depending on the people involved, it could be more challenging, but the steps are easy to outline. And also what it does is it highlights the importance 
of local electeds. I think a lot of times when we think about the LGBTQ rights movement or we think about changes, we're thinking about these big like national and state level policy and changes. And certainly those are important. But exactly what you're saying is like this town, which isn't huge, but it has protections now because of your engagement with a local or several actual local officials. Mm -hmm. And so I think so often we hear people dismiss those types of engagement. I don't want to go to the school board. I don't want to go to the mayor's office or the county's office, but those can make such a big difference. And so I, I think that that's a really great example and highlights so many good things. One of my questions is what you just said, and you mentioned a little bit earlier, meeting with businesses and helping them kind of establish best practices and policies for LGBTQ folks and trans folks specifically, and then sports. And so my question is like, what are some of those policies? What do they look like? What are some HR administrative type things that can help a business or an organization, I guess it doesn't have to be a business necessarily, yeah. be more inclusive to LGBTQ folks broadly or trans people specifically? Part of it is just through education. So what we try and educate is who we are and how they can embrace and accommodate us. And part of those policies look like this. There's a, a model policy that's put out by the Transgender Law Center that talks about transitioning employees. And so best practices are to protect based on those attributes, because when the Supreme Court makes a ruling, they don't rewrite the Civil Rights Act. They don't write legislation. Congress does. And so Title VII has not been amended. Title VII has just been interpreted to include sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. And so it's incumbent upon businesses to include those things in their employment policy because that brings them in line with the Supreme Court decision and what the current interpretation of the law is. So that's at the very basic level is offer protections based on sex orientation, gender identity, and gender expression along there with race and religion and national origin and all those kind of things. Well, then what about offering transgender health care? Companies don't think about that very much. We worked with the city of Dallas back in 2017 to get transgender health care included for Dallas County or Dallas City employees. There's about 12 to 14,000 that are now protected because of the work that we did. And again, Dallas City was not going to come to me and say, hey, what should we do? Same thing with Dallas County. I got a hold of Elder Garcia and her chief of staff, Mike Love, and said, what about adding transgender health care to county employees? And they did. And we got that done this last fall was the first time that Dallas County employees were eligible for transgender health care. So that's something. Again, it's just asking. But then having a transition policy, and that's just good business. We had an issue a while back with Parkland. Parkland called and said, hey, can you help us out? I said, yeah, what's going on? They said, well, we'd hired this nurse about four months ago as a guy. And so he worked there for like four months. And then one day it just showed up as a girl. And they have sex segregated changing areas. And so the women who had looked at this person as a guy and had known him as a guy went, hey, what are you doing in here? And it was really disruptive. And they didn't really know how to handle it. And so my first question was, well, what's your policy say? And they said, well, we don't really have one. I go, there's your problem. So if you have a policy, it might say something like this. If you are a transitioning employee and you plan on transitioning at work, here's the steps according to our policy. Talk to your direct supervisor, schedule a meeting with HR, sit down behind closed doors, decide on a mutually agreed upon date to transition to that new gender, 
And that will give us time to change names and pronouns and name tags and email signatures and all the sort of things that you might want to do. If the name is changed legally, they're going to need to update payroll and health insurance. And so it's done in a very organized and intentional way with respect for the employer, but also for the employee. And then one of the things we kind of recommend is if the person is going to transition, they take the week off, take a week of PTO, let us get everything in order, and then train the people that are in your work group on sensitivity to someone who's transitioning because it's a really difficult process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's awkward as hell. It took me two years of electrolysis to get my facial hair to quit growing. And so that's like going every six weeks and you have to grow it out for like five days at a time. It's just heinous. And so having all those things in line helps make it easier. So that way, when the person comes back, usually someone who knows them really well will escort them in the building. Everybody's like, hey, congratulations. There's some roses and whatever. Now everybody get back to work. And there's a real minimum of distraction and it's respectful for everybody. So having those kind of policies in line isn't about us trying to shoehorn a company into some sort of weird agenda. It's a matter of saying, this is just good business because it, it really eases the disruption. You don't lose a valued employee. You're not firing somebody because of who they are, maybe inviting a lawsuit, but you're being respectful to them and for the company. And the person who's transitioning is going to follow this policy to minimize the disruption. So it works better for all. So that's the kind of stuff that we do. Yeah. And I think that's really great. And I think, you know, you talk about not trying to shoehorn the company, but it's also maybe a little bit easier for the employee, the person transitioning. But it's like we had a call a few weeks ago from Grand Prairie Police and they had an officer that was transitioning. And they're like, what do we do? So one of the things is to look at your dress code. What does your dress code say? Is it fair for everybody? Does it need some updating? And so they ended up making a few changes to their dress code to accommodate this new employee, but also for people that are transitioning in the future, but then also for all other members of the department so that it's the same for everybody. That's one of the things, right, is that that sometimes I guess you can have a specific policy for a specific group, but often when you neutralize is maybe not the word that I want, but equalize a policy, all boats rise with the tide, right? So like, it's good for all employees to have this, I'm assuming like a gender neutral dress code that just doesn't affect trans employees, it impacts everyone and in a positive way. Yeah. And with police departments or law enforcement in general, you have other layers because you have to take into consideration things like officer safety. And that's why women, female officers always have their hair up in a tight bun because long hair becomes a handle and you can be controlled by that very easily. Same thing with dangly earrings that can be grabbed or pulled. Mm. And so dangly earrings are not permitted in female officers and of course, male officers. But their rule said that officers shall not wear earrings other than stud earrings while on duty, but men can't wear earrings. And it's like, okay, why? It's not an officer safety issue. It's just a matter of it hasn't been updated since 1970, and people don't generally ask why to that question. So I'm the person that comes in and asks why. That's one of the first things we do, whether it's a police department or whether it's a corporation or whatever, is send me your employment policy as much as you can share with me. And we do it as kind of like a public service is we're happy to review it and identify red flags, say this could be a problem here. Also, it's important to educate them, too, because even things like if you're trying to be inclusive to a transgender employee and they don't transition while they're on the job, but maybe the HR manager knows they're transgender, if they share that information around, that could violate HIPAA because gender identity 
is considered protected information under HIPAA. And so you don't want to create a HIPAA violation because that can be a big fine in and of itself, even if no lawsuit is filed. I love the examples you've given so far, Leslie, about the work that you've done and how easy is not the right word, because I know that it's not (laughs) easy necessarily, but it's so efficient, maybe is a better word. Like you can just sort of hone in and say, okay, what is the part that you have a say in changing or have any control over within your purview? And here's the thing that you can do. And I love that. I talk a lot about that with violence prevention in general. Like what, not everybody in the movement is going to be like an advocate by trade, right? There can be a lot of community partners who are engaged in violence prevention or supporting trans rights or whatever the issue is, but like in their own way and in their own lane. And if you are thinking about LGBTQ rights, or if you're thinking about violence prevention, you might not think HR, right? Like that might not be your first, your first thought or connection, But as you're describing these very real and big impacts that it has on people in this community, it makes so much sense. And so I love the idea of targeting like, what can you do and what's within your purview to make a change? Yeah, it's one of those analogies. I'm a big fan of analogies. They make sense and they're fun and they take some of the emotion out of things. But I talk about that aspect and that is if you're cold in an office space, or if you're hot, if you don't like what it is, you can complain to your coworkers about that. I always say, talk to the person that controls the thermostat. If you want change, talk to the person that controls that thermostat. And whatever that change is, if it's an HR thing, or if it's, we want longer lunch hours, or whatever it is, want the option to work from home, great, find out who controls that and talk to them. Otherwise, you're just complaining. And so I've learned to kind of hone in on that is to say, okay, what's the problem and how can we fix it? But it's like a while back, I got into a discussion about homeless LGBTQ youth because they're vastly overrepresented. They make up about 7% of the general population. But in a homeless census in Dallas, not that long ago, they represented 40% of the homeless youth. So that's a really ridiculous number. And it's because a lot of them are kicked out of the house when they come out. Their parents ask them to leave. And so the conversation was centered on we don't have enough beds for them right now because Promise House and very few other places will accommodate LGBTQ kids that are on the street. And so my thought is, let's attack it upstream. Let's educate parents so they don't kick their kids out. Then we don't need that many beds. Then we don't have to house all these kids. We can solve the problem before it becomes a problem because we need to educate parents to say, look, you know, you've got a a little toddler and it's not the toddler's job to live your dreams. It's your job to look at your child and say, how can I be a facilitator so that you can live your dreams? And I want to remove any obstacles that I can and and shortcut things for you to make it a little bit easier for you. I had a friend named Randy who had a son named Colby, and he invited me over to the house. And Colby was like five days old. So he's like six pounds or whatever. He's in the little bassinet with a full-size NFL football. And I said to Randy, I said, what's the deal with a football? Most kids have like stuffed animals, something soft and cuddly. And, you know, you've got the Duke, the full NFL football. And he said, oh, I want him to play football when he gets older. So I want him to get used to what a football is. And I thought, it's bigger than your baby. It's, I mean, let alone his hand or something. And I said, that's really not how it works. I said, if Colby decides he wants to play tennis, is he going to be a failure? or if he wants to be an architect or something like that. 
Is it's not your job to have Colby live out your failed dreams. It's your job to make sure that Colby's dreams come true. And if he has an aptitude towards golf or something else or an interest in mathematics, that you help fan those flames and help him live his best life according to, to his interest. And I think that if parents can understand that more, that's kind of what we teach. And I think that's what PFLAG helps with as well. It's like, hey, man, I've been there. Because too often, a child will come out as transgender to their parents. And the reaction is, where did this come from? And what are my friends going to think of me? And that's not important, what your friends think of you. If your friends think less of you because your child is transgender or non-binary or gay or lesbian, then you need better friends because your kid is your kid and you should love them unconditionally. And I talk to parents quite a bit and I put it in very stark terms. I guess, you know, trigger warning is that if you have a, a male identified child that is transgender, I understand that you need to mourn the loss of the son that you thought you had, but you also need to love unconditionally and embrace the daughter that you do have, because it's a whole lot better to have a live daughter than a dead son. And that is the stark reality in the trans community. If you as a parent reject your child and deny their identity, they are, I don't know how many times, but it's a whole lot greater more likely to take their own life or have suicidal ideation or just have mental health issues and the anxiety and things. Because we've heard time and time again, there was a doctor at Johns Hopkins and he put it pretty well. He said, we've heard so many times from kids, if my parents will only love me when I come out to them, that I can do anything. There's no limits. But, you know, it's like, I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. It breaks my heart to think that there would be any doubt in coming out to your parents and saying, this is a part of who I am. And they should just open up their arms and hold you and say, I understand that your life may be a little bit tougher, but I think you're strong enough to get through it. And with help from us, we're going to make that happen. And they become allies and champions for their own kid. And that's what I'd like to see more of. Yeah, that resonates so hard because I think that, I mean, so many LGBTQ kids take their own lives or they are in dangerous situations because they're too scared to tell their parents or they told their parents and their parents have kicked them out or they maybe they didn't kick them out of their home, but they're making life miserable at that home. And so for parents, I think parental education is important. I think representation in the media is important. And I think there have been a few studies recently that have come out that have said like, Gen Z, like it's like almost a quarter, like maybe like a fifth of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ. And so these proportions are increasing. And you have some people who will say, well, that's because all of these things are making these kids gay or making them trans. And it's like, no, like we are making progress on creating a safer society for people to openly identify as who they are. And this generation is benefiting from that. And hopefully we see those numbers of kids that are taking their own lives and kids who are living on the streets and kids who are engaging in high-risk behaviors reduce because they feel safe being themselves. Yeah. Are you familiar with a song by Harry Styles called Matilda? No. Oh, my My little sister would be disappointed in me. Yeah. Let her down, Dave Grohl. It's an amazing song. It comes from the perspective of a child who was abused and basically picking her own family. So yeah, I would look at the lyrics of that, listen to the song. It's beautifully done, beautifully written. 
And I think it speaks to a segment of population. It's really, for the ones that it hits, it's going to hit really hard. I'm thinking about what you mentioned earlier, prejudice rarely survives experience. And Mm -hmm. I think about that in the context of families, friends, parents who are navigating that experience, right, of having their child or friend, whoever, come out to them. And that's why this work is so important, right? Because you would want the first reaction, of course, to be love, love, I accept, I love you infinitely forever, no matter what, right? But for the times that it's not, the more representation, the more education, the more all of these things, right? Then it makes it that much harder to hold on to the misinformation and the really harmful bias that might exist. And so that's why I'm so excited for the work that you guys you guys do. It's one of the pieces of advice that I give to parents is don't be your kid's first bully. We talk about abuse. We haven't talked a ton about that, but that's all kind of intertwined together. And it's, it's something that can be prevented upstream. We're going a little bit in the wrong direction with the pandemic and with all that's gone on politically and the tribalism. I feel like we're losing aspects of compassion and empathy that we should have towards one another and realize that we're all the same and we're all involved in our lives and we got a lot going on, but we have so much more in common. And if we could just look at each other differently and just take a big deep breath and cut each other some slack because, you know, the person that's speeding down the freeway, you may generate a comment of what an idiot and what a selfish jerk, da, 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 but they may be driving their kid to the hospital. You just don't know. And so if we can just give them the benefit of the doubt, oh, what a jerk, he's on the phone. Well, he may be calling 911. I don't know. It's not up to me to decide. And it can be hard to do that because we get in a hurry and it seems like someone's being inconsiderate. But I think if you just kind of come from that place of given the benefit of the doubt, I always say you can yell later if you want to. But if you yell first, you can never take that back. Let's give the benefit of the doubt, have a little bit more empathy and compassion for people because life's hard. It really is. And I think that that's what it all comes down to is that empathy, seeing the personhood in someone else and trying to, even if you can't identify exactly with what someone is going through, like you can understand like, well, I have also had a hard time or my mom was in the hospital and I was having to speed through traffic. You can find something that is like, maybe this is similar to what they're feeling, if not exactly what they're experiencing. But I think that But yeah, the divisiveness has gotten super deep. And I think it's one of those cases where it's the squeaky wheel gets the attention, where we put these people on television and we put people in power and that's the narrative and the rhetoric that we hear. But when you meet, quote unquote, like regular people, you can find that compassion. You can find that personhood. It is getting that experience with another person and not showboating for the cameras or for, you know, whatever. And so it's so important to remember and like center personhood. That's why I'm a hugger because I think it's hard to hate somebody you've held in your arms. Yes. Yes. And I think the other thing is as we kind of wrap down the conversation is like people of all ages are experiencing like LGBTQ folks. Like you have some people who come out very early And you have some people who don't come out until very late. And sometimes there's a lot of judgment around when someone comes out 
It's like everybody is on their own journey of self-discovery or self-acceptance or societal acceptance. And there's no one right way or time to come out. It's being able to have that support for that six-year-old who says that they are a queer person and that 60-year-old who finally feels like they can come out and live their true life. And so anywhere along that spectrum, finding that personhood and respecting them. Well, one of the things that before we go, I do want to bring up what's going on with our governor. There was a stay that was issued by a court today, but our governor had issued an opinion that affirming care for transgender youth is child abuse. And that's a very serious term. It's a very serious accusation. It also is nothing that the Department of Family and Protective Services has ever investigated as child abuse before. So this is something that's new. It's especially terrifying because it puts a lot of professionals in a very difficult position. Because if you're a therapist or if you're an attorney or if you're a doctor, there's an expectation of privacy between the doctor-patient relationship or an attorney-client privilege or a client with a therapist. But that is not respected when it comes to child abuse. There is what's called a duty to report. So they have 48 hours to report if they are aware that child abuse happens. So if the state in some way either wins that case or establishes a law that defines affirming care for youth as child abuse, all those professionals would have to break that bond of trust and report them or risk losing their license. And that is an untenable position to put a professional in who cares about that child. Because by every respect, the American Medical Association, the Endocrine Society, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Psychological Association, all cohesively agree that objectively, this is the right thing to do. It's not done lightly. Both parents have to agree. The child has to agree. The primary care physician, the endocrinologist, and the psychiatrist all have to say that this is appropriate treatment for this child. We don't need intervention from the state of Texas to weigh in on that opinion. They have no standing. They have no reason to be involved in this relationship. And to call it child abuse is to be a disservice to every child that is being abused. Because typically in a case where there's child abuse, it's not the child saying, please, please, more of this. Can I have more of this? This is life-saving, medically necessary care. And to call it anything otherwise is an obscenity. That's my TED Talk. I appreciate you bringing that into the space. And it's also important that there's just a lot of misinformation about gender affirming care. A lot of inflammatory language that people use to try to scare people. And it's like, this is something that is, as you noted, like consulted by several doctors. Like there are so many people involved in this. You want to schedule a time, I'll come on and talk for 40 minutes about gender risk care and all of that because I speak to medical schools and doctors and hospitals quite often on the subject. And I even spoke at the Texas Medical Association convention in Houston in May because it's that important. Yeah. And, you know, just on the note of bad policy and law, like recently, both here in Texas and in Florida, you have politicians that are trying to ban children from drag shows. In Florida, the legislative sponsor for it is talking about removing parental rights if parents bring children to a drag show. But then it's these same people that are saying, well, parental rights to have oversight over what the schools are teaching their children. So we've got to remove all the LGBT books and we've got to like remove all of this information from libraries because parents' rights. And it's like, well, what about affirming parents' rights to to parent their children? 
Or what about banning gun-toting nut jobs that go in and shoot up classrooms? You want to keep kids safety. I don't think drag queens are anywhere near the top of the list or transgender yeah. people. It's armed people that with a chip on their shoulder that go into classrooms and murder children. And it's absolutely reprehensible that they aren't doing anything of substance to solve that. Instead, they're scapegoating another marginalized population of the LGBTQ community and saying, oh, it's because of you guys that kids are having problems. And so I know it's not. So, And when you talk about what we were just saying about centering personhood and keeping the humanity of it, when we put everything you just said in context, at the end of the day, these policies will result in fewer young people or people of any age, but specifically these policies fewer young people reaching out for services and support and assistance. And when we know that those are the life-saving measures needed for this population, it does not end well. So that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. I like solutions that start upstream. Mm -hmm. You know, with the chaos, certainly it needs to be dealt with, but if you could prevent it, so much the better. Speaking of prevention, <laughs> our prevention team here at TCFB is so thankful for you for spending the time with us today to talk about this really important topic and also just all the work that you do at the center. And we'll be sure to link some information about you guys in our episode description. And that way folks can take a peek over at your website and see all of the amazing things that y'all are doing there. But yeah, Leslie, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure to meet you. It was my first time meeting you. Aww. So it was a pleasure to meet you and to chat. And for those of y'all listening, we will talk next time. 